Hey everyone, welcome to Neighbor Science, the only podcast about political economy and anime. I'm Ryan Salisbury. Uh, this is part of our Seeing Like a State book series where we are discussing each chapter of Seeing Like a State by James C. Scott in detail with a different guest each week. Today we have from the Doomer v. Bloomer podcast, Franz, to talk about chapter five. How you doing, Franz? Yeah, uh, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on, Ryan. I'm stoked to be here. Um, yeah. <laughs> awesome. I've been listening to your podcast this week. Um, oh, have you been? <laughs> to see, you know, what, what you've been talking about. Um, uh-huh. I was wondering a little bit why, uh, why you haven't released in a while. Are you just busy or? Oh, yeah. Well, it's, you know, a combination, normal winter depression, uh, COVID uh, depression, yeah, I had that you know, all that <laughs> stuff. We've been on a brief hiatus. Um, we just put out kind of a, a short, you know, brief overview of, of the game stocks. Game stonks fiasco, um, and then we are, uh, yeah, recording again tomorrow an episode about uh, the far right, the populist right, sort of the rise and ideology of those movements. So you know, there's a little teaser for <laughs> an, a future episode of Doomer versus Bloomer. Well, hey, perfect timing then. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I feel that winter depression thing. I I really fell off of doing this until I started doing this book series. I mm-hmm. like barely released anything for like months. Um, so yeah, I, I feel like it's hard to balance, you know, depression, working full time and podcast editing. So, so, you know, sometimes breaks are in order. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, okay. So, uh, yeah. Chapter five, uh, this is where people may start dropping off because it's pretty critical of the Soviet union. So (laughs) hopefully people either stick around or my audience is just a bunch of Lenin hating anarchists. Uh, (laughs) Uh, oh, and the, the chapter after next is is critical of the Soviet Union, too. It is just interesting that he... I mean, I wonder how much of your audience it does actually like Lenin. I don't know the makeup of your audience particularly. Probably not very much. <laughs> but it is interesting that James C. Scott chooses to focus specifically on Le Corbusier and then Lenin. Because in chapter three, he kind of sets up, when he's defining what high modernism is... He sets up like three or four what he thinks are the peak examples of high modernism. One is Nazi Germany and then the village of villagization in Southeast Asia. I, I don't remember exactly, but then he kind of just pulls out of nowhere like, okay, Le Cabousier and Lenin, he, these are the two yeah. things we're going to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> but they're good chapters and they're, you know, I think they are good case studies of, if not high modernist practice, then at least high modernist theory, you know? <laughs> right. I do wish he went a little bit into that uh, villagization in Vietnam thing because mm-hmm. I, I tried to look into it and it seemed like it was basically like a large anti-communist operation by South Vietnam and the and the U.S. where they like uh-huh. forced people out of their villages and like tried to consolidate them, which doesn't seem like utopian at all. It just seems like a strategic military operation. So I don't know right. if that's <laughs> what he actually meant or if I just found the wrong thing or what, but... Have um, you read the rest of the book, or have you just read up to? No, the, I'm I'm doing this as I go. So as you go, okay, because he does he talks about uh, forced villagization and I believe a couple different parts of Africa later in the book. But you know, it I is did different. start the next chapter. Um. Oh, sorry. No, I I looked ahead a little bit, and yeah, there's Tanzania. Um, yeah, which he he prefaces a little bit, but um, yeah, not not specifically about Vietnam as far as I can tell. But mm-hmm. anyway, I guess I guess I'll see. Uh, you know more about the book than I do at this point. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, I listened to the whole thing as an audiobook, and then I went back and read 
chapter five, the one we're discussing, um, as a text form. So I kind of have, you know, when you listen to something as opposed to read a, a little bit of a fuzzier, you know, memory of it. But <laughs> right. I, know a, yeah. I know a bit. But you actually finish it, which <laughs> yes, <laughs> I have I have trouble reading, so I don't uh, I don't get very far very fast. So. <laughs> Fair enough. But anyway, so uh, let's let's dig in here. So chapter five again is about Lenin, and uh, the first section is called Lenin, architect and engineer of the revolution. Uh, so Scott is going to compare the bureaucratic vanguard party strategy of Lenin and the Bolsheviks to the modernist plan city of Le Corbusier. Mm -hmm. So he kind of admits that despite being a high modernist, Lenin's strength was his ability to read the metaphorical battleground and respond to movements swiftly and effectively. Although he kind of, I I wrote this as I was going and he kind of hedges against that later because he says he actually wasn't very strategic (laughs) later on. So I don't, I don't know what he thinks about this actually. I mean, that's kind of why earlier I qualified, you know, these examples of Lenin and Le Corbusier are there. Scott is looking more at the high modernism of their theory or what they set out to do rather than the high modernism Mm -hmm. of what they actually accomplished. Um, Like what y'all discussed in the last chapter uh, with the example of like Brasilia, which wasn't designed by Le Corbusier, but using, you know, his ideas. Yeah, it was one of his students. Yeah. Um, you know, there are all these ideas of how the city is supposed to function. And then in reality, you have all these informal slums popping up and, you know, these different ways that people interact with the city, despite the high modernist rule set rather than in accordance to, um, Mm -hmm. so, so there is that disconnect between, between the theory and the practice. And so I think to the extent that Lenin was successful in seizing power, he did have to sort of go against some of the, the stricter, high modernist ideals and yeah, respond to um, the changing uh, components of the battleground uh, swiftly and effectively as Scott said. Yeah. 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 I guess it does focus mainly on his ideology and not so much on what he did and especially not like judging what he did. You know, Mm -hmm. one thing that I thought was really interesting is uh, Scott believes that his, his politics were, most strongly influenced by a book by Nikolai Chernyshevsky called What is to be Done, the same title as his first book. Um, and the conceit of that book, it's it's a fiction novel, I think. And uh, the conceit is that a high-minded, highly intellectual authoritarian ruler like destroys the old order of society and replaces it with a utopian one. Yeah, Which, wasn't that it was like his brother's favorite book and then his his brother died in some sort of attempt at revolutionary activity. I think you're right. Yes. It just it feels like this was Lenin was just some younger brother who like really looked up to his like cool older brother who then died <laughs> doing revolutionary activity and he just like pinned his entire like identity to that and was just like yes, yeah. this is and then spent the rest of his life, you know, obviously becoming educated and getting involved in revolutionary struggle, but something about that, you know, event or that relationship to his dead brother main, you know, remain very important to his ideology. It seems. I guess if I had an older brother who was in like Narodnaya Volia or something, I would probably <laughs> make that my personality too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it could happen. <laughs> so he has a, he has like a quote from him to support this idea that like what is to be done was, more strongly influential on him than anything else. Um, He specifically says, I became acquainted 
with the works of Marx, Engels, and Plekhanov. I don't know who that last person is. But it was only Chernyshevsky who had an overwhelming influence on me. I thought that was interesting that mm-hmm. he not only named his book after another book, but that it was like a utopian fiction sort of thing. <laughs> um, not at all what I would expect. It would be like if in 2021 20, someone just like read Hunger Games and was like, yeah. that is what we need to do. <laughs> Yeah, they they released a book on revolutionary strategy called Hunger Games. <laughs> God. <laughs> or Divergent or something. <laughs> <laughs> Named it the Divergent Party. <laughs> right. <laughs> so he starts talking about like what the idea of a of a vanguard party is, and he spends quite a bit on this. Uh so in Lenin's mind, the idea of a vanguard party is to discipline the backwards masses into a revolutionary army. And it, this is in in the book, What is to be Done? This is where he lays that out? Yes. Because in State and Revolution, he kind of tacks toward the center of Leninism and anarchism mm-hmm. and says, like, oh, yeah, we need, like, autonomous workers to rise up. But it was, like, a, a political move, essentially. Right. Yeah, Scott mm-hmm. starts by analyzing Lenin's What is to be Done, written in 1903, you know, prior to you know, the Russian Revolution, which is, like, Lenin's most uh, high modernist work, according to Scott. Um, right. And then skips ahead to State and Revolution, which is written in in 1917, right? Like, in the midst of, like, pre-October. Um, I think it was 1919, or... Okay. It was, like, between the Revolution and when the Bolsheviks, like, really seized power. Right, right. Um, And so, at that point, he's kind of forced to respond to the actual conditions of a revolution in mm-hmm. in a way that kind of hampers the most extreme aspects of the high modernist ideology in his writing. Um, that's kind of right. how I saw that, the way that Scott described that, that change from the Lenin of what is to be done to the Lenin of state and revolution. Right. Yeah. So in what is to be done, he kind of says that like spontaneous bottom up protests are sporadic and easier to police. And while they have, enough potential force to overthrow the czarist regime. Um, it needs to be shaped by a vanguard into like a shape charge that will produce enough actual force to overthrow the czarist regime. Ideological opponents argue that 10 wise men could be easily grabbed by police, whereas 100 fools could not be stopped. But Lenin countered that without the dozen talented men who were not born by hundreds, no class in modern society is capable of conducting a determined struggle. So he basically thought very little of the working class in terms of being able to actually create their own revolution. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's so patronizing to the working class mm-hmm. and just it, this whole thing just read to me as this very specific kind of narcissism where you just think that you know what is best for everyone. Like Lenin's just like, I mean, I know people like this who, you know, in my experience organizing, who just think that they, mm-hmm. like, I know how to do it right. Everyone has to do it my way. And like, you know, everyone else. The ori- He's the original person who thinks that we need a state because he's going to be the one in charge of it. Exactly. It has nothing to but do with the was. actual ideology. <laughs> it's just like, the state would be better if I was in charge. <laughs> yes. But unlike all those, all the people that are like that now, he actually did he end did up it. in charge of one. <laughs> <laughs> right. And we see how that played out. Yes. Uh, And Scott points out, I really liked this, uh, because I am guilty of using this term as well. Mm -hmm. Um, He points out that the term mass or masses carries a lot of connotations. 
that the majority of people involved in a revolution do nothing but add undifferentiated, unorganized, uncoordinated, unthinking quantity to it. That mm-hmm. working people, unlike the vanguard intelligentsia who will lead them, have no history, ideas, or plan of action themselves. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's so important to, like, how you view revolutions and revolutionary struggle. It's, like, do the people actually doing the work, like, what are, why are they participating? Like, do they have something to gain for it? Do they have, like, autonomy and agency over shaping, like, what the revolution is creating um, in a way that creates something that is greater than the sum of its parts, right? Like, recognizing that all of these participants have um, their own skills, their own things to add, their own needs, their own knowledge of their local context um, that can create a movement that's yeah stronger than what a single centralized body could create. Yeah, and I think another big part of it is distinction between seeing class in terms of like simply being deprived of material wealth versus like that and being in control of your own fate, essentially. Mm-hmm. And if if you're in the former group, you don't see anything wrong with wielding the working class like instruments as long as they end up with, you know, stuff like food and a house. Right. He he also says that the uh, discipline of socialist thought must be imposed upon them lest bourgeois ideology make its way into the masses. Um which isn't like a completely baseless concern, especially like now with the evolution of propaganda into PR mm-hmm. with Edward Bernays and stuff. It is really true that like a vast majority of people by default hold like a liberal ideology, right? Because right. that is yes. the society they're raised in. That's the schools they go to. That is like the only system that's ever been presented to them as a valid option. But like mm-hmm. viewing, you know, the quote unquote masses as uniformly backwards and incapable of holding liberatory views or being taught something different, it's ignorant. And it, it isn't yes. strategic in the sense that you, you just sort of write off the potential that all these people have um, rather than trying to cultivate that potential, which is hard. Like, I'm not saying it's easy to just like snap your fingers and everyone in the working class is going to be a full-fledged communist or whatever. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, it's patronizing again. And, and it also supposes that you're not vulnerable to the same issue. Right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> I put in the notes. Certainly it's possible for someone to say, be a Trotskyist who hates liberals at one point and later just turns into a conservative warmonger. <laughs> uh, so that, I think that puts first and second point together. Right. I'm going to read uh, this passage. I, th- I think it's pretty illustrative I- of Lenin's thoughts. By Scott, not Lennon. Okay. He says, The analogy to the division of labor in modern capitalist production has implications roughly parallel to those of the military metaphor. Both, for example, require authoritarian methods and central control. Thus, Lennon wrote of the party's need to distribute the thousand and one minute functions of their organizational work, complained of technical defects, and called for the unification of all these tiny fractions into one whole. As he concluded, specialization necessarily presupposes centralization and, in its turn, imperatively calls for it. And Scott continues, it is surely a great paradox of what is to be done that Lenin takes a subject-promoting revolution that is inseparable from popular anger, violence, and the determination of new political ends and transforms it into a discourse on technical specialization, hierarchy, and the efficient and predictable organization of means. 
Politics miraculously disappears from within the revolutionary ranks and is left to the elite of the vanguard party, much as industrial engineers might discuss among themselves how to lay out a factory floor. The vanguard party is a machine to produce revolution. There is no need for politics within the party inasmuch as the science and rationality of the socialist intelligentsia require instead a technically necessary subordination. The party's judgments are not subjective and value-laden, but objective and logically inevitable. I, I really liked that part. The part where where Scott specifically points out the fact that the politics are a, like aren't the primary concern; they're secondary to these ideas of of science and rationality, which mm-hmm. you know both Lenin and Le Corbusier and all these other high modernists employ in this totally idealistic type of way just to mean whatever the way I say is the right way is the is the scientific and rational way to do it without any of the sort of like actually rigorous investigation to prove that they're right. It's just sort of these assertions of like this way of organizing a city or this way of organizing a revolution, you know, is hierarchical or it's structured or it looks aesthetically pleasing to, you know, you know, Corbusier has this whole thing about like squares and lines or whatever. Um, (laughs) And it's just like, all of that trumps any actual engagement with the politics of the party. Yeah, it is really funny that they that they call it a science <laughs> without like the barest of pretense that it's like evidence based at all. Right. <laughs> and and the funny thing is, like, people use the term scientific socialist like all the time. Mm-hmm. And if you ever mock them for it, they're like, oh, actually it comes from uh Wissenschaft. So it, it's a different meaning of science, <laughs> but it's like, okay, well, obviously you, what you meant to do was make people think that it's like science as they think of it. Right. And also that seems like a cop out. Like, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a direct quote from what is to be done uh, that follows this part that I also thought was good. Lenin says our very first and most imperative duty is to help train working class revolutionists who will be on the same level in regard to party activity as intellectual revolutionists. We emphasize the words in regard to party activity because although it is necessary, it is not so easy and not so imperative to bring workers up to the level of intellectuals in other respects. (laughs) So fucking patronizing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Therefore, attention must be devoted principally to the task of raising the workers to the level of revolutionists, but without, in doing so, necessarily degrading ourselves to the level of the labor masses, as the economists wish to do, or necessarily to the level of the average worker, as Svodoba desires to do. I don't know how someone can read this and, like, still respect him afterwards. This is, like, the most downward-looking shit I've Mm -hmm. heard from any socialist, I think, ever. Oh, yeah. In attempts to create the so-called, like, dictatorship of the proletariat, yet cementing such a firm distinction between the actual proletariat and those who will be the dictators is just absurd, right? To, like, (laughs) if you want to say the proletariat are going to be in charge and then draw this harsh distinction between the proletariat and those in charge, you can't say the proletariat are in charge, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of think that's why most people who consider themselves influenced by Lenin don't really talk about this book nearly as much as state and revolution. Mm-hmm. Cause I don't think he does this level of like looking down his nose at workers in state and revolution. Mm-hmm. So uh, Scott later tries to be like a little fairer to Lenin 
I don't know why, but um, <laughs> uh, he says there is another contingent and Russia-centered reason why Lenin might have insisted on a small, disciplined, and secret cadre of revolutionists. Uh, they were operating in an autocracy under the noses of the czarist secret police, which makes sense. But then later he says he comments on the openness of competition for office within the German Social Democrat Party. And he says, try to put this picture in the frame of our autocracy, where a revolutionary must conceal his identity under pain of arrest. Such openly democratic methods are impossible. So the revolutionaries must adopt the tactics of their enemy, the political police. But then Scott says, if this were the only argument Lenin made for secrecy and iron discipline, then it could be treated as an incidental and tactical concession to local conditions. But it was not. The secrecy of the party was designed to prevent contamination from below as much as arrest and exile, which mm-hmm. is what we just heard in the um, passage from his book. Right. I mean, Scott kind of has to acknowledge this in order to be fair or maybe protect himself from criticism of people being like, well, Lenin, you know, had to do this. You know, you got to right. put forward the the counter argument, say, like, maybe it was just like out of a tactical concern. But it's like, but no, it's not like Lenin says it's not. And if it was the development of the Soviet Union, like after the Bolsheviks take power, would have like unfolded much differently. So, yeah. Then, like, if that's the reason, then why have the Cheka? Right. <laughs> All right. So Scott continues, and he he says uh, Lenin believed spontaneity made tactical coordination impossible. He also believed that without ideological discipline, the working class would revert to mere trade unionism and legislative reform. Fortunately, nothing of the sort happened in the USSR because of the vanguard's ideological discipline, of course. And Scott says this betrays a belief that class consciousness could never develop autonomously within the working class, and therefore the actual politics of workers threaten the goals of the vanguard. I mean, like, I'll admit it is hard to do tactical coordination within, you know, decentralized groups, but it's not impossible anarchists Mm -hmm. since then have like figured out like pretty effective models for spokes councils and you know coordinating you know direct action campaigns and other sorts of campaigns across decentralized non-hierarchical groups operating in different local conditions and it is hard to pull that off but when you do it's more effective than one hierarchical bureaucratic institution making commands in one direction right (laughs) like yeah. It just seems like he's like, it would be too hard. Um, <laughs> so yeah. we, it's impossible. We There's no use trying. It's impossible. Moving on. <laughs> so I have this passage here. I'm not going to read the whole thing, um, but I do want to mention some specific details about it. Scott's basically saying that Lenin considered the vanguard to be a machine for bringing about the revolution. And so he says that the vanguard's relation to the working class is not much different from a capitalist entrepreneur's relation to the working class. Sorry, that was a weird emphasis, but anyway, uh, the, uh, the working class is necessary to production and has to be trained uh, by some sort of leaders. And I, the part that I highlighted that I do want to read specifically is uh, the ends of the revolutionist and the capitalist are of course utterly different, but the problem of means that confronts each is similar and is similarly resolved. <laughs> I, I really like that he's using this like machine metaphor because I, I'm like always thinking about uh, Lewis Mumford mm-hmm. and um, Myth of the Machine and how there's a specific type of ideology that sees other people as instruments or parts in a machine. And if you just like 
build the machine correctly, then it'll, you know, get you exactly what you want. And, uh, you know, the, the main form of that this takes is like, you know, ordinary states where the machine creates, you know, class divisions and, you know, operates on this like weird upper class, like death drive, uh, with all of this like sacrificial, like war and just practices in general. Mm-hmm. And, um, it ends up being very similar. If you think of people that way, you end up with very similar structures, especially if you try to imitate like any amount of them, uh, like the Bolsheviks did in creating a state. It's pretty difficult to distinguish between the two. And and I just like that he kind of highlighted that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it requires a you know process of stripping the humanity from humans in order to make mm-hmm. them fit within this, you know, metaphorical machine structure it's just, I mean, it's it's just straight up dehumanization, um, you know, scary shit. Yeah. He also says that, like, such organizational logic seems more appropriate to factory production. This is probably the fourth time he's mentioned the factory metaphor in this chapter, but I, I do think it is very appropriate, especially because, like, this, this particular type of socialist, like, thinks that so factories are good. And... So organizing things like a factory is pretty natural for someone with this ideology. So Scott compares Lenin to Le Corbusier again in that both believe that knowledge of modern science gave them purchase to force into order a chaotic reality. They were extremely modernist and they believed in unitary scientific answers for problems, which meant that there was nothing that existing practice or ideology could contribute. So it didn't, it didn't really matter what people believed or how things were at the moment, because we just need to get rid of all of it and replace it with, you know, the scientifically correct way of living. And both also saw themselves as machine builders. So he says for Le Corbusier, the house and city were machines for living. And for Lenin, the Vanguard party was a machine for revolution. Many scholars have noted that much like Le Corbusier's plans for the city were not borne out in practice, neither were Lenin's blueprints for revolution, like Franz hinted at at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is what yeah. I've been harping on. <laughs> so he quotes Hannah Arendt here and says, uh, the Bolsheviks found power lying in the street and picked it up. I love that quote. It's so <laughs> funny. <laughs> I know Hannah Arendt is, you know, hashtag controversial, but, you know. I don't actually know great. why, so... Um, do you have a summary version of that? I mean, I, I think mostly it's, I, it feels like the kind of thing where Marxist-Leninists decide that they don't like a thinker and do what they did to, like, Murray Bookchin or other people where they kind of just, like, nitpick, like, every possible thing that this thinker could have said wrong, which is plenty of things when you're talking about people writing, like, in the 20th century and, like, putting forward. So she did an interview with uh, Reason some- Magazine. Is that what it was? <laughs> yeah something like that i mean no but she was involved with heidegger right oh, the Nazi. Okay. um and it, people have, i've seen a couple like lists where people have like cherry picked some like you know admittedly pretty shitty things she said about indigenous mm-hmm. people so you know controversial maybe for good reason but doesn't mean she doesn't you know also say good stuff <laughs> and it's and it's pretty cynical when it's coming from people who praise a nation that like deported hundreds of thousands of people and let russians like ethnic russians settle their land so you know right <laughs> or or uh sold a, a million a billion tons of oil to the nazis <laughs> it's you know 
weaponized cancel culture for right. people we don't like. But, you know, protect protect the regimes yeah. that we do like. I, I did have a feeling like uh, some people mentioned – I I think I talked about this Iran quote with someone else while I was writing the notes and someone said, oh, yeah, she's – controversial or whatever and i was like oh is it because she criticized the soviet mm-hmm. union <laughs> so i guess that is it <laughs> okay yeah <laughs> that's what it yeah. feels like to me but okay know. so here's where scott says he kind of like goes back on what he said at the beginning uh he says that lenin was not a prescient commander who could see the strategic situation clearly he says in january 1917 a month before the february revolution he wrote disconsolately we of the older generation may not see the decisive battles of the coming revolution. <laughs> yeah. First thing that makes sense that Lenin said <laughs> so far this chapter. <laughs> that's that's really funny to me. That's that's exactly like the economists who like in mid 2008 were like uh yeah, it's amazing. We're we're basically never going to have a recession ever again. Like we've figured out the economy. <laughs> Yeah, we figured it out, got all the equations, um, <laughs> just put the right numbers in, we know it's going to happen, we're good. There was like a whole theory called the Great Moderation, which is like, oh yeah, the economy has become like remarkably stable, and I guess that's just how things are now. <laughs> yep, very cool. Okay, uh, so Scott continues by saying that the revolution was like a battlefield in a sense, but not in the sense that Lenin wanted it to be. I, I really like this passage, so I'm, I'm going to read the whole thing. What must forcefully strike any reader of accounts of the detailed events of late October 1917 is the utter confusion and localized spontaneity that prevailed. The very idea of centralized coordination in this political environment was implausible. In the course of battle, as military historians and astute observers have always understood, the command structure typically falters. Generals lose contact with their troops and are unable to follow the rapidly changing tides of battle. The commands the generals do issue are likely to be irrelevant by the time they reach the battlefield. In Lenin's case, the command and control structure could hardly falter as it never existed in the first place. (laughs) Ironically, Lenin himself was out of step with the party's leadership, many of whom were behind bars, and was criticized on the eve of the revolution as a reckless putschist. (laughs) That that makes me wonder, though, I mean, this is more of like a a different topic, but I, I do wonder about that command structure failing thing i didn't i don't really know much about military history so like mm. what do they actually like what do the generals actually do do they like just yeah, point them know. at the right at the place and say like all right go and then like who's actually like making the decisions well there's you know multiple levels of hierarchy i guess like who's below the generals yeah. you know i think it might be like the <laughs> i don't know anything about platoon commanders either. whatever the hell they're called um yeah, right i don't know <laughs> right but I mean, at least in the abstract, without knowing anything specific about how militaries function, it does seem like, you know, individual platoons or, or you know, whatever, whatever they're called, yeah. military people are called, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> had some level, had their own knowledge and ability to respond to different conditions and make their own decisions based on knowledge that only they can have by being the ones in that situation, it it just seems like this very strict top down. Well, we got to sit around and wait for, you know, communication from the general right. before we do anything. It creates a very unstable and easily toppled structure. I mean, exactly what Scott is saying. It just you know, it's the structure is only as strong as its weakest points, and the weakest points seem to be the ability for the generals to actually control. Um, the people they're trying to give orders to, um, either just because of lack of communication or 
uh, disinterest or whatever it may be. It is funny, though, that he's like, yeah, anyone who knows uh, enough about military history will know this. But like for historical narratives, like they always talk about what the generals did, you know, it's not like about what the lieutenants mm-hmm. did or whatever. I mean, it's just easier. <laughs> um. Anyway, so basically the Bolsheviks got a small part of the military on their side. The provisional government of Russia after World War I did not. So they formed a state that began a campaign against the White Army, um, but also the Green Army, which is a peasant army that was opposed to all governments, and the Black Army, another peasant army led by Makhno, and other various insurgents who resisted the formation of a new state regime. Scott mentions the Kronstadt Rebellion, uh, the Tambov Rebellion, which I didn't know about. Uh, that was a Green Army rebellion, and the Red Army basically came in and killed 15,000 peasant rebels with uh, machine guns and poison gas. And um, he also Oof. mentions the Maknos China, the free territory, or yeah, I think the translation is something about like being a traitor or something, which is kind of cool, actually. <laughs> <laughs> There's a good quote that I have here. Um, After seizing state power, the victors have a powerful interest in moving the revolution out of the streets and into the museums and school books as quickly as possible, lest the people decide to repeat the experience. I think it's a really good summary (laughs) of like why they did what they did after the revolution. So, I mean, there's an Emma Goldman piece called My Disillusionment (laughs) with Russia. She basically writes about after she got, uh, you know, Emma Goldman, the Russian anarchist, lived in the United States, got deported back for being an anarchist in like 1922 and in that she sort of just like writes her own experiences of seeing what has happened in Russia by 1922 and she has a whole section where she talks about like how weird their their (laughs) museum is so that's just (laughs) what that reminded me of (laughs) I'll have to read that Uh, So the next section is the Lenin of state and revolution. So Lenin kind of became a different person a a little bit when state and revolution came out. (laughs) I mean, who doesn't grow over the course of uh, 15 years? (laughs) That's true. That's true. Right, you know. (laughs) Um, So he had a different view of the vanguard and the masses at this point. Um, But Scott says he more so may have feared the Kerensky provisional government regaining control of Russia after the revolution. So he encouraged self-directed revolutionary activity in an attempt to ensure that that didn't happen. So he basically wanted people to rebel more at this point, um, specifically so that the whites couldn't uh, regain control of Russia. (laughs) Maybe this is just me being cynical about Lenin, but it definitely feels more less of him having this like change of heart about how he views the masses or the working class and more yeah, more just like a tactical redirection um, where he's acknowledging changed circumstances that he has to respond to. Yeah, and I mean, I haven't read the whole book, but I honestly didn't get that really at all from State and Revolution. Like the intro is all about how the worker state will uh, wither away when the material conditions are right, and again, it's very specific grievances against Mensheviks. That's like the first several chapters. Um, so I don't yeah. know where he talks about like self-directed revolutionary activity. Um, but I guess Scott has read the whole thing. So he probably knows a little better than me. <laughs> <laughs> and so Scott says he still portrays the masses as fundamentally incapable of organizing socialism themselves. And 
need the guidance and direction of a state. In describing the new society that would emerge from the revolution, Lenin imagines a political state society run by a giant bureaucracy where everything is a simple technical problem solvable by a salaryman. He saw the bureaucracies created to manage capitalist states and create compliant workers as training and disciplining them. That's from a different book, I think. Uh, providing the keys to the new world of industrialized socialism. The new world would be static, of course, once you solve a problem that's you know, gone forever. <laughs> that's so crazy. That, yeah, just like this end of history. I mean, it's such that kind of Marxist teleological stages of history narrative where, oh, well, once we reach full communism, like we've reached the yeah. end of history and that's just it. No problems anymore forever. We've like solved this simple technical problem um, rather than this recognizing this complex, you know, project of, of creating a better world for all of humanity is complex and ongoing and we can always strive to create something better. I don't know. It's, it comes across as very conservative. And they'd probably make fun of Francis Fukuyama too. <laughs> right. <laughs> But I mean, but he he got the phrase end of history from Marx, didn't he? Am I misremembering that? That I don't know. I, I have no idea. Okay. Yeah. I would have to look that up. <laughs> um, so it, it's, again, based on large-scale machine industry. So he has this machine ideology still um, because socialism, after all, is when workers produce and consume commodities. Scott quotes this section from the immediate task of the Soviet government. Uh, I didn't write down the details of like what that actually was, um, but it's basically like a uh, like a sort of long like I think like a white paper like internally for the Bolsheviks. It's like an office yes. memo. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was gonna say memo, but it's like longer than that, you know, because this is on page two seventy one. Right, so right, it's, it's yeah. pretty long. Um, <laughs> so I'll, I'll read this. He, he says, it must be said that large-scale machine industry, which is precisely the material source, the productive source, the foundation of socialism, calls for absolute and strict unity of will, which directs the joint labors of hundreds, thousands, and tens of thousands of people. But how can strict unity of will be ensured? By thousands subordinating their will to the will of one. With iron discipline while at work, with unquestioning obedience to the will of a single person, the Soviet leader, while at work. So he basically, like wants everyone to just listen to one guy in the workplace and that will create the material conditions of socialism. Lenin looked at the bureaucracies and the Taylorist factory production of capitalism and was just like, yes, this is peak human achievement. This is the best thing that humanity can strive for. We just got to do more of that. Like, how crazy is that? You can't imagine anything better than that. You can't imagine a world that's any better than those shitty, shitty things. It's just kind of sad. Well, it's funny, too, because in like two chapters ago, I think um, Scott mentions that at first he called Taylorism the exploitation of sweat. And was against it. Mm -hmm. And then later on, he was like, I guess he saw, you know, the results of intensive agriculture or shit like that and was like, oh, this is actually good now. Right. <laughs> so Scott talks about Lenin's vision of the transitional state, which is like uh, major psycho shit. He imagines a, a national syndicate <laughs> and an accounting system that will rationalize all industry and converge upon the single apolitical technical solution to all problems. Uh, and if anyone doesn't like it, uh, here's what he says. 
For when all have learned to manage and independently are actually managing by themselves social production, keeping accounts, controlling the idlers, the gentlefolk, the swindlers, and similar guardians of capitalist traditions, then the escape from this national accounting and control will inevitably become so increasingly difficult, such a rare exception, and will probably be accompanied by such swift and severe punishment, in parentheses, for armed workers are men of practical life, not sentimental intellectuals, and they will scarcely allow anyone to trifle with them. That very soon, the necessity of observing the simple, fundamental rules of everyday social life in common will have become a habit. The door will then be wide open for the transition from the first phase of communist society to its higher phase, and along with it, to the complete withering away of the state. I really thought that parenthetical was just wild. It's so brutal. And it's that is even from yeah. State and Revolution, the work where Lenin is supposedly, you know, calmed down yes. a little bit or whatever. Yeah, I I was imagining the um the Steve Buscemi meme, the how do you do fellow workers kind of thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I wrote, I wrote in the comments only sentimental intellectuals hate bureaucracy and bosses, not workers who I know many of. Right. It's interesting. I was, you know, looking through some of the footnotes and you know, one one thing that Scott says about Lenin is like There is for Lenin a single, objectively correct, efficient answer to all questions of how to rationally design production or administration, which is just, you know, not true for one. And then two, you know, he talks about, you know, disciplining workers, um, having this rigid hierarchy to like keep everyone in place. Um, But uh, the footnote from that page 163, that Mm -hmm. quote I just read Um, In fact, of course, there is no rationally efficient solution to any problem of of this kind that ignores human subjectivity. An efficient production design depends vitally on the positive responses of the workforce. The auto workers who hated the efficient mass assembly line in Lordsville, Ohio, responded by working so sloppily that they made it an inefficient (laughs) assembly line. Like, these attempts to, like, rigidly control workers isn't actually effective. Like, it's not what makes people human beings more productive or more likely to cooperate with your factory production system. Yeah. People who are like this, I think, you know, we can figure out the absolute most efficient way to do, you know, social production, like industry on a national or global scale. Like, I don't think they've thought about it very hard because like the first question that you have to ask is like, what are you making? And like, uh, what level of, this is more of a modern question, but like what level of ecological destruction are you willing to accept in order to make that stuff? Um, mm-hmm. Which is, there's no single answer to either of those questions. Right. They just want to come up with like the broadest abstraction that can apply to any yes. situation. Um, but that's not going to be the best answer in any situation. Right. Yeah. And, and the, the solution space for this kind of problem is like basically infinite. So it's like, you can basically just like guess, like make a guess and uh, you can improve things, but you don't, you never know if you're like being the most efficient or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I also like this idea that like workers love like living according to spreadsheets. Basically this was before spreadsheets existed, but like that's basically <laughs> what he's saying is like, yeah, workers are just going to like fill in all the spreadsheets and they're going to be happy to do it. Cause you know, that'll make life great. Like spreadsheets are awesome, dude. <laughs> I I kind of personally do. Some people love do spreadsheets love spreadsheets, and, and, that, and that's fine. In my life, <laughs> but, but I would never. A lot of people hate them. I would never impose it on anyone else. 
<laughs> they're nice to use. They're not nice to like live your entire life by. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know. My my um, planner system kind of, <laughs> you know, I won't get into it. It's a little rigid. <laughs> but that's I don't me, plan you know? anything except for like this podcast. That's about it. <laughs> if I didn't plan every single like minute of my life, I wouldn't <laughs> do anything. But but not, you know, that's that's not everyone operates that way. I'm not trying to create a society based on those rules. It's the fact that I can do that and you don't have to that makes, yes. you know, the world great. Agreed. So that was, that was a short section. Um, the next is the Lenin of the agrarian question, uh, which I had never heard of this book. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's from 1907. And actually, this, maybe this was before what is to be done. What is to be done? I'm sorry. I'm just looking it up real quick. That was 1902. 1902. Okay. So it is after. Five, yeah. two. Um, yeah. So this is a book on agriculture. Scott says it was an unremitting condemnation of small-scale family farming and a celebration of the gigantic, highly mechanized forms of modern agriculture. And Lenin compared the difference between those two to the difference between cottage handlooms and textile factories, which I actually agree with in the sense that large-scale agriculture and textile factories are both bad and highly destructive. And they're favorable because of their (laughs) ease of management and surveillance and descaling and not because they're more efficient. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, they're more efficient in, like, such a narrow sense in that it's sort of easier to measure and create a very uniform and predictable output um, that you can plan, you know, make large-scale plans off of, um, but not more efficient by, like, nearly any measure, (laughs) any other measure. They're also more efficient at creating uh, existential threats to humanity. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So, uh, oh, he also says Lenin used this comparison because Marx did to compare feudalism and capitalism, the cottage handlooms and textile factories comparison, which I thought was funny. He he does a lot of like mm. just repeating what other people say. It seems, yeah, just like latching onto random things Marx said and being like, "This is it." Mar- Marx is his big brother, <laughs> his replacement big brother, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I do kind of think he fills that role for a lot of people though, not just Lenin. But anyway, fair enough. Um, Lenin believed that uh, peasants and their mode of production was hopelessly backward, which uh, I think might partly explain the brutal suppression of the Green Army uprisings like the Tambov Rebellion. Um, and he denounced common property as preventing the full development of capitalism, which was a precondition for socialism. <laughs> That's <Yes>. so crazy. <laughs> common property directly contradicts communism yeah that um oh that that reminds me that i I didn't get to this part but i've seen it quoted quite a few a few times uh there's a part in state and revolution where he basically says that the state is going to be your landlord so Mm, very cool (laughs) yeah smart guy i like him just because someone said and by someone i mean marx that like the full development of capitalism is the precondition for socialism like therefore like it just I mean, you know, I'm not going to say it's a completely baseless claim, but it's in a lot of ways there's there's no evidence to show that like capitalism has to be developed in these very specific ways including the destruction of common property in order mm-hmm. to create this thing socialism which is supposedly built off a system of common property or you know lack of property maybe that's where the diff- the, the distinction is but 
I don't know. It's just crazy. Yeah, I guess we shouldn't assume that everyone listening like has already like tread this debate between like Fair enough. you know stagism and I don't know what the alternative is called non stagism, <laughs> <laughs> but like yeah, it, it basically depends on the idea that like we live on like linear time and things can only improve or in order to develop socialism, you have to like tend towards this specific form of improvement. It's not like a, just a general set of like institutions and social relations. It's like a specific state of highly industrialized society that can, you know, produce a lot of stuff essentially, which is weird because like, one of the big things about socialism is supposed to be that it's against commodity production, but then it's like, oh, but we need to do commodity production in order to achieve socialism. Doesn't really make a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, it's you know the the steel man version of of that sort of argument is like, well, you know, the existing social relations kind of lead into and create, you know, the social relations we want to create. Like the social relations we're trying to create don't just come out of nowhere, right? They have some basis in the way things have been done or are currently done. Um, but then they create this sort of very rigid timeline about exactly how that has to play out. I and mean, if we don't follow it exactly, which includes doing some things that seem pretty contradictory with our end goals, uh, you, you know, that's that's how they have to do it. I don't know. Or there's like the darker version of the steel man, which is like, in order to achieve socialism, we have to overthrow the existing society, which requires creating this huge mechanized death machine to defeat them militarily and, you know, oust them from power. I don't know if I believe that. <laughs> I don't think I do. I hope it's not true, but I don't know. Yeah. No way to know. <laughs> Hopefully death machines aren't a prerequisite to a better society, but yeah, you know. that would, yeah, that's <laughs> well, what I hope we'll too. <laughs> wow. This really is uh doomer V bloomer time. Huh? <laughs> Yeah, I guess so. You know, as the bloomer, I don't think death machines will be necessary, but feel free to try and change my mind. <laughs> as the doomer, I'm I'm not sure. <laughs> okay, so Scott says that studies of different forms of agriculture uh, have revealed that mechanization had negligible effects on output, and that what actually mattered was intensification. And for those who don't know, what they mean by that is um, intensive agriculture is the specific type of agriculture that we practice today where everything is reduced to like inputs and outputs. Um, you have like this big single cropped field, like a giant field of corn and you give it the exact amount of nitrogen uh, fertilizer and like phosphorus fertilizer and pesticides and stuff that, that it needs. You basically do this instead of like, older forms of agriculture where you like rotate fields so that, you know, you have one in fallow so that it can regenerate the nutrients that it had. Instead, you just like add nutrients to it. Um, and these nutrients are basically created through uh, nitrogen fixing in, in the Haber-Bosch process or, or prior to that, it was uh, created by mining bird shit from islands off the coast of South America. Um, and so that, that's like the main reason that, uh, we've kind of like eliminated famines is because we have this system that produces very reliable output. Um, but it also depends on basically destroying topsoil and, uh, killing all insects, uh, that eat the, the specific crops that we're growing and destroying the ecological diversity of, um, 
you know, living space and, and stuff like that. I mean, it sounds very efficient to me as long as you, you know, don't think about any of the, you know, externalities created by this process or the environmental destruction or the long-term sustainability of of this process. It seems, it seems fine if you don't consider those. Right. (laughs) Yeah. I I also like turning oil into nutrients via energy. (laughs) (laughs) And so, yeah, these, so these studies said that intensification is what actually like increased output on these like large mechanized farms. Um, The mechanization was basically just, like I said, it was for ease of surveillance and management uh, rather than efficiency. Um, and likewise, scale was irrelevant to output or even negative, like smaller farms could be more productive. Mm-hmm. Um, so Lenin, rather than changing his mind, sought to refute the studies. So Scott says he exploited the inconsistencies of their empirical evidence and introduced data from other scholars, both Russian and German, to make the case against them. Where the evidence seemed unassailable, Lenin claimed that the small farmers who did survive managed to do so only by starving and overworking themselves, their wives and their children, their cows and their plow animals. So whatever profits the small farms produced were the consequence of overwork and underconsumption. And then Scott also says that like Lenin was basically a bumpkin who thought electricity was magic and the key to breaking the power of the feudal lords whose power depended on small scale production. I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to blame someone writing in like 1907 for being excited about electricity, right? Like, That's true. That's true. It's, it's a little technological. <laughs> it's old hat for us. <laughs> yeah. It's a little technological reductionist to think that like, that's going to be the thing that defeats the power of the feudal lords. But you know, it's, it's exciting. <laughs> I mean, we, we did exactly the same thing with computers in, right. you know, the early 2000s, <laughs> late nineties. So I guess, I guess I can't say anything. Cause I, I believe that too. Um, <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, the internet is going to democratize everything for sure. Yeah. If only. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, But Scott does admit that later in his life he changed his mind about some of it. So he says Lenin decided at the end of a devastating civil war and grain procurement crisis to shelve collectivization and encourage small-scale production and petty trade. Some some have suggested that in his last writings, he was more favorably disposed to peasant farming and it is speculated would not have forced through the brutal collectivization that Stalin ordered in 1929. And we're going to get to the collectivization in a couple chapters. Yeah. Too bad Lenin was dead, you know? Maybe he really would have just turned it around and (laughs) not done that. Yeah. (laughs) But despite the concessions... Uh, Lenin never abandoned high modernism completely. Scott quotes his retreat order during the Kronstadt rebellion, which unfortunately I don't know enough about this to like give context to that. But uh, if you don't know, the, the Kronstadt rebellion was basically an uprising of um, sailors and like naval conscripts and workers in Kronstadt, which was a naval base, and they were basically demanding uh, like better working conditions and more um, autonomy um, in making decisions and the Bolsheviks uh, just came and like sieged Kronstadt and suppressed the rebellion. Um, and the, the excuse for that is, Oh, they were in a civil war. So, you know, <laughs> we had to do it. So the, the retreat order, uh, he says, until we have remolded the peasant until large scale machinery has recast him, we must assure him of the possibility of running his economy without restrictions. We must find forms of coexistence with the small farmer since the remaking of the small farmer, the reshaping of his whole psychology and all his habits is a task requiring generations. I think that's a pretty good way to end 
section on Lenin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good riddance. No. <laughs> So next section is about Rosa Luxemburg. Sorry, I forgot her first name for a second. I brain fart. It was like Emma Emma Rosenberg. Um, <laughs> you know, one of one of the women. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's about Rosa and uh, compares her to Jane Jacobs, who was uh, the critic of uh, Le Corbusier and urbanist modernism. So unlike Jacobs and Le Corbusier, however. Lenin and Luxembourg actually met each other, which is pretty interesting. Uh, so the two of them wrote on the same subject for mostly the same audience, and she like directly criticized him. If they existed today, they'd probably be like shitposting at each other on Twitter. <laughs> oh, I can only imagine the, the Twitter beef. <laughs> <laughs> so the the three essays referenced here will be organizational questions of Russian social democracy from 1904. Mass Strike, Party, and Trade Unions from 1906, and The Russian Revolution, which was published posthumously in 1921. And so her primary clash with Lenin was that she believed in the autonomous creativity of the working class. Mass Strike was written in 1905 after the first revolution, which was kind of convenient timing. It was like optimistic about the working class, um, as opposed to What is to be Done, was, which was written in 1902, uh, several years before the revolution. Not to excuse Lenin, but, you know, obviously, uh, if you had just seen a revolution, you'd be like, oh, yeah, these working class guys are, uh, you know, they're on the right track. Lenin was being a, a bit of a doer. Yes, exactly. <laughs> we can say. Yeah, so, you know, if things work out, then, uh, like, tomorrow or, you know, a couple months from now, there will be, like, a, you know, an overthrow of the state without a huge death machine, and uh, you'll be vindicated, and I'll be owned. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I guess so. It's always easier to be a bloomer when things are going yeah. well, but you got to stick with it, even the hard times. Like that's what Lenin didn't understand. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. But Luxembourg was still a Marxist uh, committed revolutionary and wasn't completely opposed to a vanguard party, but her take on it was more that it was able to see the bigger picture relative to rank and file workers. You're talking about, uh, was mm-hmm. it spokes? What, what is it called? Spokes councils. Yeah. Is that, is that kind of the same thing? No, the way a spokes council works is that you'll have different groups sort of operating autonomously from each other who will each pick a spokesperson mm-hmm. to go to like a coordinative meeting. So spokes councils are usually more of like a meeting or decision making structure rather than a permanent institution. I I think the closest analogy within anarchism would be like the especifismo model. Are you familiar with that at all? Yeah, like platformism. Yeah, well, yeah, so Especifismo is like an anarchist tendency originating in Brazil in the 1990s and has kind of taken off in Latin America since then. It's highly influenced by like platformism and other classical anarchists, but also um, as well, you know, also just like organizing an anarchist organizing experiences in Latin America since then. Um, but one of one of the core components of like the especifismo model is that you have a specific anarchist organization, mm-hmm. which is a small group of dedicated revolutionaries that have a high degree of agreement with each other on ideology, strategy, tactics, means and ends, these sorts of things. And then that group 
will, rather than trying to command or control some undifferentiated masses, they seek out different social movements um, or struggles that are sort of already happening or already have the potential to be happening um, and engage with them as organic participants who can advocate for like anarchist mm-hmm. means and ends um, without ever t- attempting to like control them from this okay. level. So I've, I've heard something similar where you have like a, maybe this is based on that where you have a specifically anarchist organization and then you also have like a big tent organization that the anarchists are part of. Yeah. Um, that isn't specifically anarchist, uh, but you know, basically welcomes anyone who wants to fight with the organization. Yeah, totally. That's like one way. I think like in the Espesafismo model, you potentially have multiple different fronts, they call them. And so that, you know, mm-hmm. broader non-anarchist specific group, you know, could be like one of the fronts that the anarchist militants get involved with. Gotcha. Um, but it seems like this like sort of Luxembourg conception of the Vanguard Party is somewhere between the Lenin conception of the Vanguard Party and the Espesafist conception of the specific anarchist organization okay um which gets accused of being vanguardist a lot but i think that's just you know individualists and i mean anti-org anarchists but you know yeah there was uh someone who i will not name because uh they turned out to be a really horrible uh person uh but they were shitposting like a couple months ago about how like basically everyone believes in a vanguard and whenever someone said like no, I actually believe this. They were just like, oh, yeah, that's a Vanguard, actually. Um, <laughs> Oof. But uh, anyway. While we're on this point, just really quick, it, it is like, it's cool that he chose Luxembourg and Colin Ty to be the sort of counterpoints to Lenin. Mm-hmm. I would have preferred if he had picked, you know, some more anarchist critiques. But, you know, yeah. th- these two, they'll do. They'll do. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, she says that uh, the Vanguard could see the bigger picture relative to rank and file workers. Um, but as Scott points out, Neither Lenin nor Luxembourg had what might be called a sociology of the party. That is, it did not occur to them that the intelligentsia of the party might have interests that did not coincide with the workers' interests, however defined. They were quick to see a sociology of trade union bureaucracies, but not a sociology of the revolutionary Marxist party. I I sort of like, that's something that, like, you might know intuitively, but it's interesting to hear it, like, put explicitly, Mm -hmm. you know? The Vanguard is just like an empty conduit for communist politics that can't (laughs) i don't know yeah uh luxembourg also compared the vanguard to a factory manager that was directing rank and file workers to produce something beyond the immediate perception of the workers so i I think the reason that she used the metaphor was specifically that last part um as opposed to like being like machine politics like lenin Mm -hmm. so where where lenin saw perfect omniscient geniuses operating workers like Archelians from Men in Black. Uh, Luxembourg was aware that people have limited knowledge and, and get things wrong. Um, man, I just realized that reference is going to make me sound so fucking old. <laughs> like, the Zoomers that are that listen to this are probably going to be like, what What the hell is Men in Black? <laughs> it has been a long time since I've seen that movie, so it did go over my head a little bit. But once you, when I read, yeah, you said Archelians, and I was like, who? And you said Men in yeah. Black, and I was like, oh... <laughs> They're they're little aliens that operate like drones that look exactly like humans. They like sit in their head and pull levers and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so you don't have to watch the movie, but it right. is it is a pretty fun movie. Uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, on the other hand, Luxembourg did not use military metaphors. Uh, instead, emphasizing the learning and growth processes involved in revolutions, and the very idea that a vanguard could command the masses in remotely the same way as a military 
to strike or revolt is both unrealistic and immoral. Mm-hmm. It would be bad to like command them from on high, you know? Yeah, I think it's important to make both of those points. Like, one, this isn't an effective strategy, and two, like, for human reasons, it's immoral to treat people this way, right? <laughs> I think, yeah. you know, sometimes you can kind of just talk about one or the other, but it's like, well, yeah, no, both. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it goes back to uh, what I was saying near the beginning, where, like, you know, you either see the problem as being, like, people are simply deprived of things or people are deprived of things and control over themselves. Mm -hmm. And if you understand the latter, then it seems inconscionable to command workers like a general to do revolution. Right. Especially, like, with the possibility that, you know, there's going to be, like, mass death makes it even worse. Yeah. I I like this quote that Scott uh, has about uh, from the end of, this, um, end of this section, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, describing uh, Rosa Luxemburg's beliefs. Um, he says, A strike or a revolution was not simply an end towards which tactics and command ought to be directed. The process leading to it was at the same time shaping the character of the proletariat. How the revolution was made mattered as much as whether it was made at all, for the process itself had heavy consequences. And I just thought that was really interesting because, mm-hmm. you know, he's again talking about this sort of creating and shaping of the proletariat, but like in the Luxembourg sense, it's a much more sort of like organic back and forth process of influence where, you know, the proletariat are shaped and changed by being active participants within the struggle and then can go on to change um, the process of struggle. Um, And this, you know, feedback loop where hopefully the struggle is getting, you know, the revolution is, is, becoming, you know, more powerful, more advanced, whatever, and the proletariat is becoming uh, more empowered, more intelligent, uh, more capable of participating fully, and so on, rather than just sort of this one-directional process of of molding the proletariat and, and sending them off to be part of the masses. Yeah. I wonder, I don't know the intellectual roots of, like, prefiguration as an idea, but it, if it came after this, this seems like a you know, like a precursor to it kind of thing Mm -hmm. or like a major influence on it. I feel like that, I don't know if they use the terms, but the sort of earlier like utopian anarchists that just want to sort of create the new world um, within the old, maybe, maybe that's the origin of of prefiguration, but I don't know if they use that term. Okay. I think it is pretty new actually. Mm. I I looked it up real quick. I mean, this is just Wikipedia, but um, in the history section, they started talking about it in the seventies. Okay. So Yeah, I guess it is a relatively new idea, like, as a specific concept. I think this is a new section. I put it as a new section anyway, Um, but it's it's called Revolution as a Living Process. I believe that's, yeah, it's like a subsection of the Luxembourg section. Yeah. Uh, So Luxembourg used those, uh, those silly dialectical and historical materialist analyses on strikes and political struggles. (laughs) <laughs> the process of revolting, regardless of which specific tactic is used as a, as a learning experience, uh, which you were just saying, uh, she acknowledged prefiguration that the means used to achieve revolution mattered as much as and shaped the achievement itself. Oh, yeah, maybe the thing I was quoting was from the beginning of this next section, not the end of the last one. Either way. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I didn't quote it specifically, though, so it's, it's good to have that in there. Uh, Luxembourg writing a criticism of what is to be done criticized hierarchy for its deleterious effect on the human spirit. So she says that 
uh, Lenin focused on controlling the party rather than fertilizing it and on narrowing it down rather than developing it and on regimenting rather than unifying it. In other writings, she argues that the German SPD, the Social Democrat Party, in their efforts to institute control and discipline over the working class have rendered them demoralized. Uh, and Lenin, on the other hand, thinks that a weak teacher would be influenced by his unruly pupils into bourgeois ideology. So, like, exactly the opposite. I get a pretty vulgar picture in my mind when I hear hear about Lenin fertilizing the uh, the party. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that is, uh, yeah, vulgar is a good description of that. <laughs> so when she started believing that Revolution was more akin to a natural process than a factory floor. It became clear that a vanguard party wouldn't be able to achieve much. So Scott quotes her reaction to the Winter Palace Massacre of 1905. Um, do you want to read this? My, my voice is starting sure, to go yeah, a little yeah. bit. Uh, as the Russian Revolution of 1905 shows us, the mass strike is such a changeable phenomenon that it reflects in itself all phases of political and economic struggle, all stages and moments of the revolution. Its applicability, its effectiveness, and the moment of its origin change continually. It suddenly opens new, broad perspectives of revolution, just where it seemed to have come to a narrow pass, and it disappoints where one thought he could reckon on the full certitude. Now it flows like a broad billow over the whole land. Now it divides itself into a gigantic net of thin streams. Now it bubbles forth from under the ground like a fresh spring. Now it trickles flat along the ground. All forms of popular struggle run through one another, next to each other, across one another, flow in and over one another. It is an eternal, moving, changing sea of appearances. I love that quote. I love how she um, uses these like metaphor of water just like springing up from these different locations and rushing together. And it, like when I was reading this, what it really reminded me of. Um, is this like the Bruce Lee quote where he says, oh, be yeah. like water. I'll just read that full quote. Cause I have it here. He says, be like water making its way through cracks. Do not be assertive, but adjust to the object and you shall find a way around or through it. If nothing stays within you rigid, outward things will disclose themselves. Empty your mind, be formless, shapeless, like water. If you put water into a cup, it becomes the cup, put water into a bottle. It becomes the bottle. You put it in a teapot, it becomes a teapot. Now water can flow or it can crash. Be water, my friend. Which the reason I think of that is uh, like the Hong Kong protests from a while back sort of adopted that phrase, be water or be like water, Mm -hmm. to describe um, like a specific sort of way of tactically engaging with riot police within the context of like street demonstration, which then this Mm -hmm. last summer... Um, in the wake of like the George Floyd protests got brought, you know, to the U S and because I, I guess I followed Portland pretty specifically because I live, you know, here in the Pacific Northwest, maybe other places did this as well, but really adopted that framing of, of be like water as a way to, you know, specifically within the context of like street demonstration with, you know, riot police. But it's also a metaphor that I think that can apply to a lot of different, uh, social struggle and this need to be adaptable and formless and flow and that part where you know water can flow or it can crash you know like it it does have that that yeah. power behind it as well um so yeah i really like or it can erode or it can erode totally it has all of these different 
yeah, ways of engaging with, with power structures and, um, in a way that's much more flexible and adaptable than, you know, (laughs) most of the metaphors that Lenin would use. Right. Yeah. I was, I was also just going to say like, she is like the first good writer that's been quoted (laughs) in this book. Like Lenin's writing is terrible and this was really good. Like I I really liked this passage. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, uh, Scott says from her perspective, Lenin must have seemed like an engineer with hopes of damming a wild river in order to release it at a single stroke in a massive flood that would be the revolution. That's another great bit of writing there, too. Mm-hmm. That's like I think that's a perfect metaphor for the way that he was writing. Yeah. Maybe even more, like, even better than the machine, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Luxembourg's metaphors for Lenin's writing are better than Lenin's metaphors for Lenin's writing. <laughs> <laughs> So further, she attacked the German and Russian uh, revolutionary communists for trying to substitute the ego of the workers for the ego of the vanguard. The strategy ignores the fact that the goal is an autonomous working class rather than simply another upper class using people as instruments. She later made similar attacks in 1918 after the October Revolution. She noted a different interpretation of dictatorship of the proletariat, where it meant that the whole proletariat would rule rather than being ruled in the name of the proletariat by an upper class speaking for them. Seems like a better... <laughs> I mean, not that I like really stand behind the idea of the dictatorship of the proletariat either way, but you know, if you're going to talk about it, that seems like a better <laughs> interpretation. Yeah, agreed. So the last part is about Alexandra Kolontai, uh, which is spelled really weirdly in this book. Um, <laughs> I just spelled it the normal way. <laughs> well, I'm sure it was a Russian name using Cyrillic characters. So what is right? What is weird when you're talking about you know Russian being written with the Latin alphabet? Yeah. Are you saying there should be a more a more standardized <laughs> way to do these things? Well, my opinions on transliteration are not well formed enough for me to actually like describe them here, but uh, <laughs> I do think it should be spelled with an I and not a Y. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just say that. <laughs> so yeah, Kolontai uh, embodied the critique of Luxembourg from within the Bolshevik movement. Uh, she was a you know Russian revolutionary. Uh, And she wrote a pamphlet critical of Leninism in 1921 that Lenin considered nearly treasonous Mm -hmm. because of its coincidental timing with the suppression of the Kronstadt rebellion and the Maknovshina. Some of those Russian words are hard. Um, (laughs) Kolontai had read Luxembourg's social reform or revolution and later met her in Germany. Um, It's cool how all these people knew each other. I like that part of it. Yeah. Kolontai's critique repeated many of Luxembourg's arguments, but with a more specifically 1920s Russian context. Uh, she argued for an all-Russian Congress of Producers, freely elected from the trade unions, which would direct production and industrial planning. This section is written kind of weird. He kind of jumps around a lot mm-hmm. in this part. Uh, but I, I think I tried to organize it a little better, but I don't I don't know if I did a good job. But uh, he jumps to... <laughs> Uh, Kolontai's comrade Alexander Shlyapnikov. <laughs> Alexander Shlyapnikov. Let me give it a try. Uh, Shlyapnikov. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I think you got it. Yeah. Um, and other allied trade unionists 
that one I, I can pronounce, uh, <laughs> were upset with the maintenance of the martial structure of industrial management created during the Civil War. So, like, during the Russian Civil War, they had this, like, heavily bureaucratized structure, which they accepted because they're like, well, it's a war, so I guess we have to do it. Um, but then after the war was over, they kind of preserved it and uh, started shutting out actual socialist organizations, and uh, they started getting pretty alarmed about that. It's almost like they were ideologically committed to those structures and probably enjoying <laughs> the power that it afforded them. So rather than it yep. just being a strategic, temporary uh, implementation of that. <laughs> yes. So he he jumps back to Kolontai and says um, her experience helping to organize creches and canteens, which I had to look this up um, I'm pretty sure that they are worksite childcare centers and cafeterias. Mm. I mean, I've heard canteen before, but not not in that sense. And I, I've never heard crush before. Right. She helped organize those two things. And um, the difficulty of dealing with state bureaucracy informed her critiques of the Vanguard Party. She argued that in the Leninist view, the workers' organizations were merely machine parts transmitting or carrying out the orders of the Vanguard. She also criticizes the pedagogy of Catholic school teacher Lenin for <laughs> leaving no room for experimentation or creativity. Mm-hmm. That's one thing I, th- I think we haven't really illustrated very well is like how much Lenin like thought of himself as a school teacher. Right. Scott talks about that specifically quite a bit, but uh, I kind of left it out of the notes. Yeah, the, the two metaphors reason. are like the school teacher metaphor and the military commander. <laughs> like mm-hmm. two things that, you know, I don't look at those two institutions and go, yes, that is how we should create a better society. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was actually like, I actually had a lot of realizations about uh, schooling today. I don't think I should get into them because we're already uh, starting to run a little bit long. Mm-hmm. But basically, yes, yeah, school is a prison is not uh, much of a, an exaggeration. Yeah. But anyway. So her experiences as a woman in male-dominated organizations also informed her view that the party was infantilizing workers. Do you mind if I just read the whole? I have the quote there for that. I know. We're oh yeah, long, go ahead. But this this is a part that it you know interests me as a you know one of those uh, women, as you call them. <laughs> um, <laughs> there is some evidence that Colin Ty's work on behalf of women had a direct bearing on her case for the workers' opposition. Just as Jacobs was afforded a different view of how the city functioned by virtue of her additional roles as housewife and mother, so Kolontai saw the party from the vantage point of an advocate for women whose work was rarely taken seriously. She accused the party of denying women opportunities in organization of creative talks in the sphere of production and development of creative abilities, and of confining them to the restricted tasks of home economics, household duties, etc., Her experience of being patronized and condescended to as a representative of the women's section seemed directly tied to her accusation that the party was also treating the workers as infants rather than as autonomous, creative adults. Um, Yeah, and I just, I think it's really interesting that Scott chooses, you know, in the section about Le Cabousier, he chooses Jane Jacobs to be the counterpoint, Mm -hmm. and in this section... He chooses Luxembourg and Kolontai and specifically points out the ways in which he thinks, like, the fact that they are women contributed to their different views on these things. Which, like, I don't know, when I first reading it and, like, when he first brought it up in reference to Jane Jacobs, definitely kind of rubbed me the wrong way a little bit. 
in the sense that I'm like, okay, if I ever wrote something and then uh, like 50 years later someone read it and was like, wow, Franz really had this opinion because she was a woman, I would be yeah. I would be pissed. <laughs> um, but also there is a lot of truth to the, what he's saying in the sense that having these different experiences and living within societies with such strict gender roles clearly influenced the way that these women interacted with the city or interacted with revolutionary activity. Like, how could it not, you know? <laughs> and so, um, you know, there's there's obvious ways in which those experiences would make a woman more likely to notice or make these critiques. Um, not that all women did, not that men weren't capable of making similar critiques, but, you know, their their gender isn't irrelevant here, clearly. That's that's basically what we concluded with the um, part about Jane Jacobs. Mm-hmm. I I basically thought that like uh, it was very unlikely for a man to think about the things that she was thinking about, especially with with respect to crime. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I don't think men care about crime nearly as much. Because <laughs> um, you know they'll just pull, I, I said they'll just pull out their gun. <laughs> <laughs> You know, an armed society is a polite society, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do think a man would be less likely to come up with the same critiques. Um, so maybe they didn't think of it because they're women, but they wouldn't have been as likely to think of it if they were men. Yeah, or yeah, just because of the, ex- ex- especially because it, you know, Scott talks about uh, Colin Ty being involved in the the creches and the canteens, which I think you said was mm-hmm. like child care and food preparation. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yes, she was or- like organizing. Probably not a lot of men organizing those. <laughs> right. She was involved in these types of labor that are, you know, that women are relegated to and probably experienced a lot of like gender segregation and dehumanization mm-hmm. and patron- patronization that she then was able to more clearly see playing out through you know, lots of different aspects of this party apparatus um, and, you know, refined her critique that way. So, you know, good on her. Right. Yeah. I'm glad you, I'm glad you had that quote because at this point in the notes, I was tired of transcribing things Mm -hmm. and was like really just trying to get the notes done. (laughs) So I kind of like glossed over a lot of it, but uh, she, she wrote that the party believed women were only fit for home economics and household duties. And uh, I, I like the she mocked Trotsky's praise of workers that had voluntarily replaced shop windows for revealing that he wanted them to be mere janitors. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was funny. <laughs> <laughs> she also thought that if there were experts, they should be experienced workers who serve the rest of the workers rather than being like bean counters and officials that would dictate orders to them. Um, the latter typically dragged down the workers with delays and nitpicking by the bookedness and domineering. That's not his phrasing. That's mine because <laughs> I was <laughs> trying not to repeat the exact same words as him. So both Kolontai and Luxembourg saw the process of revolution as requiring, as Scott puts it, do you know how to pronounce this word? <laughs> I was actually, yeah, I was going to wait to see how you pronounced it first. But because, uh, I listened to the, because I listened to the audiobook, I thought it would be like Métis or something like that. The audiobook narrator pronounces it Metis. <laughs> Metis? Which I hate. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> no, I'm not. It's horrible. I hate it. <laughs> but okay. it, is, it is this really interesting Metis. concept that he spends like the whole conclusion talking about. It's super cool. This is the first time he kind of like introduces it, I think. Yeah, I like the I like the concept. Mm-hmm. I don't like the term, the pronunciation <laughs> of it. <laughs> Fuck. 
Do you want to explain the term? (laughs) Sure, yeah. So here in this section, he defines it as knowledge that can be acquired only by long practice at similar but rarely identical tasks, which require constant adaptation and changing circumstances. So, you know, basically this, he talks about sort of like handcrafting a lot in sort of trying to explain or give metaphors or examples of the way this works. Um, But the idea that if you are an expert um, in doing a certain thing, performing a certain task, like, you know, maybe, um, pottery or, or whatever, um, you have a certain level of knowledge that can't really be just sort of like written down in a quick, like, here's a 10 step process on how to, you know, create a bowl out of clay on a throwing wheel. You know, there's, Mm-hmm. That knowledge that comes from doing that over and over and over again and knowing if I want to make the bowl like this, here's how I have to move my hands. And if the clay has this texture or this density, here's how I have to like interact with it differently. Um, so all these sorts of like particular, like unique aspects of each given task, um, you can only really have the knowledge of how to do that and how to interact uh, with those processes by just doing them over and over again. Yeah. Like, you don't know all the little ways. I think everyone has experienced this kind of thing. You know, it's like if if you're at a job and you you have to train someone to do something, like, it's hard to describe everything that you know to them. Right. Because a lot of it is just, like, implicit knowledge. And some things you're never going to figure out until it just comes up and you try it and you figure out, well, that way of doing it worked or that way of doing it didn't work. Yes. Um. Yeah. Yeah, so it's that sort of, like, intensely practical knowledge that's really hard to communicate, really hard to write down, really hard to teach because of just the uniqueness and randomness of every, you know, given situation or or scenario. Mm -hmm. It's funny, uh, every time I hear uh, the term handicrafts now, I think of the last episode that Young Neocon was on. (laughs) I I said, like, why uh, why don't you do handicrafts? Like, we were talking about, like, a theoretical, like, utopian society mm-hmm. and he's just like i don't want to do handicrafts <laughs> just the way you said it was the funniest thing to me and i think about That's it funny. all the time <laughs> yeah but it does it's not just applicable to handicrafts like 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 you said almost any right. job anyone's ever done you've probably experienced this yeah i was thinking of my job when i read this yeah another example scott uses in the last chapter is this idea of like um it's a much different skill to sail in the open sea versus to traverse mm. a ship through like a port. Um, and so oftentimes the way it, it'll work is, you know, you'll have the, the ship captain who's sailing through the sea. Um, and then when they get to the port, like the dude that works at the port and knows all the specifics about that given port will then be able to, you know, sail through, you know, the traffic and, you know, whatever. Um, cause he knows about, you know, the local weather conditions. He knows about, you know, he has the meatus about the, this very specific location <laughs> and layout of, of the port that he's used to working with. Um, so you could, you know, apply that to a lot of different, you know, maybe more relevant scenarios than, you know, making bowls by hand, but <laughs> you know, it's sort of these easy metaphors to, to grasp at. Right. I read this article like a couple of years ago about how, um, Polynesian people, basically had the largest, like the society that spanned the most area of the globe Mm -hmm. for like hundreds of years because they were so good at uh, piloting boats that they could like pinpoint tiny islands in the middle of the Pacific 
uh, using like these indigenous navigation techniques mm-hmm. y- using like um, not only like the, the sun and the stars, but also like the specific currents and like uh, the specific types of seabirds that were around and stuff like that. Yeah. That's meet us for sure. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. So they, they saw the process of revolution as requiring meet us and Kontai analogized this by asking if the smartest feudal reeve could have invented capitalism, which they couldn't have because their skills and experience were tied to the medieval state system. Mm-hmm. And so my last note here is, in the end, uh, Lenin took these arguments to heart and changed his outlook. Just kidding. The Bolsheviks banned the workers' <laughs> opposition organization. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Ugh, I love, there's, sometimes I interact with, like, Marxist Leninists who are also just like feminists or whatever, mm-hmm. um, who are like, yes, I love Colin Ty. And I'm like, but <laughs> you're also a Marxist Leninist <laughs> and her group was banned. Okay. <laughs> they probably like her as the ambassador, uh, more than like this person. Right. I don't know. Just guessing. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, so that's, that's all I have. Do you have any like concluding thoughts? Ooh, concluding thoughts. Um, I didn't think of this either. <laughs> that was a mistake. <laughs> yeah, um, interesting chapter. Um, I love it as an example of of high modernism. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, the the struggle cannot be mapped out. The revolutionary struggle can't be mapped out. It requires a a plurality and experimentation. Um, I I guess like one thing is. Just this, like the idea of the gestalt, like the thing that is greater than the sum of its parts, right? Like mm-hmm. is so completely ignored by these like top down, like we can come up with one unified way of doing everything. It's the simplification is a process of making a revolutionary struggle or a city um, or whatever you're applying these high modernist ideas to like less robust. You're making it easier to crumble, um, less resilient to unpredictable circumstances, which are always going to happen. Um, And it's only through allowing different local variations and individual workers and groups of workers to have their own ideas and have their own autonomy and ability to act independently that you're able to create a whole that is actually greater than the sum of its parts, not a whole that tries to simplify all of its parts and strip them down of anything that could make them um, different or unique or resilient um, and it's, it's, I don't know, it's absurd why, why Lenin would think this was the best way of doing things. <laughs> yeah, I guess, uh, I mean, it is hard to like get in the mindset of someone from this period uh, as people who kind of maybe not implicitly understand, but, you know, are kind of surrounded by like postmodernism and, um, the kind of like negative, outcomes of technology um which have become very obvious to us especially in the late 2010s and you know the beginning of the 20s like mm-hmm. it's very obvious that like a lot of the technology is kind of a not only a pandora's box but like maybe not even that like it's just like empty promises mm-hmm. a lot of the time and doesn't really improve our lives meaningfully or even worse can like make them far worse. And the idea that there's like singular truths is like very obviously not true to us anymore with like, uh, like people like 
the QAnon movement where they just believe this entire alternate reality and they start, they must believe that like they know the actual correct truth. Mm -hmm. And from standing outside of it, we can see like, well, I guess there isn't really like a singular correct truth. Like uh, it's kind of all a matter of perspective and you can kind of feel for correct answers, but not know exactly like what, what the truth of everything is. And, um, yeah, I don't really know where I was going with that, but <laughs> that's just what I think of is postmodernism. <laughs> yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I thought this was a really great episode. It's nice. I haven't had a, you know, another podcaster on for a while. So it's, it's nice having someone who really jumps in and knows what they're doing and stuff, you know? Well, yeah, it was, it was fun to be here. It's, I'm just, as I mentioned at the beginning, kind of getting back into the swing of things with the whole podcasting game. So, you know, this is fun. Mm-hmm. It's always fun to be on on other shows. You're going to be extremely ready for your recording tomorrow. Yeah, you right in the groove. <laughs> Assuming that I don't get snowed in and can't drive to where I need to record. But, you know, oh. we'll see. <laughs> um, <laughs> can, I, can I plug my pluggables one more time? Absolutely, yes. Uh, yeah, so as I mentioned at the beginning... Um, I am co-host of the Doomer versus Bloomer podcast. I am the Bloomer, as I mentioned a couple times. My co-host and I <laughs> argue about whether or not humanity is doomed, you know? That's always fun. <laughs> um, I also um, facilitate the Seriously Wrong book club. Seriously Wrong, the awesome podcast you should check out. But we do a weekly reading group on their Discord server. Uh, right now we're working our way through uh, Debt, The First 5,000 Years by David Graeber, um, and then doing random standalone articles every other week for folks that can't show up for a whole long book. Um, but yeah, David Graeber is awesome. He's kind of why I got into James C. Scott, because I like love David Graeber so much, and someone was like, yeah. you know, there's this other anthropologist who's like kind of an anarchist who kind of reminds me of David Graeber. Um, and so... Yeah. Um, shouts out to to both of them for doing good work within the field of anthropology. Or I guess you know David Graeber no longer, but one more one more book will be released posthumously. So yeah, R.I.P. Um, yeah, I might I might show up for the random articles because I've I've read Debt, um, and obviously you're like in the middle of it at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that that sounds interesting. Uh, the every other week one, I'll I'll, I'll have to check that out. Yeah, I I can send you the the schedule. <laughs> Awesome. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I also, I've been enjoying your podcast this week. I, I listened to my favorite one, uh, was the one where Sean and Ad Astra comics came on oh, yeah. and you were talking about tactics. That was great. That one was a lot of fun to record. Yeah. Um, I, I'm also really impressed by like, uh, it was fairly like, I don't know if disciplined is the right word, but you know, a lot of times when you have a lot of people on, it's like a big fucking mess. Oh yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> people talking over each other constantly and stuff. And uh, yeah, it came out really well. well. We recorded it in person. So we were able to do a lot of, you know, visual hand gotcha. motion stuff, okay. <laughs> which helps. Um, yeah. So thanks again. Um, check out Doomer v. Bloomer. And uh, yeah, thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs>